You're listening to the podcast, What's Your Why? My name is Hannah Deacon and I'm joined by Professor Mike Barnes. We will be discovering why people we're speaking to have such an interest in cannabis. What motivates them? Who were they before they came into this industry? And how do they think things could improve for patients and the business sector they work in? We're taking an in-depth look into what makes people tick with an informal conversation which won't focus on finance or business outlook or commercials, but will focus on what drives them to be involved with the cannabis sector and the part that they play in bringing it to the UK and why it matters to them. I'd like to welcome Melissa Sturgeon, CEO of Ananda Developments. Welcome. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on our podcast. I'm really excited to hear more about your life. I'll try and make it interesting. I'm sure it is. I think you're a very interesting woman, so I'm really interested to hear about it. So can you tell us a bit about um, who you were as a child, what sort of child you were like, where you grew up? how you were at school, that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. So my parents were £10 poms. So they were two very working-class uh, English young people who emigrated in the late 50s under the £10 pom scheme and loved it and stayed. So I suppose I consider myself a child of still the Second World War because that sort of influenced a lot about the way I was raised. It was very... Um, it was just me, my mum and my dad, so I'm an only child, and there wasn't a lot of money, so it was really about, it was about family and it was about working hard and trying to better yourself. And my mother's phrase, she's now dead, Her one of her favourite phrases was, um, if the Germans aren't bombing you, then you don't really have much to complain about. So... There wasn't much room for sort of complaining or feeling sorry for oneself. We just sort of had to get on with it, really. So that that was the backdrop, and it was a bit unusual, I think, in the Australian context. I mean, there are lots of immigrants, obviously, in Australia, but it was only when I moved, I say back, but I moved to the UK in 2006 that I really realised how much I was the product of English parents not really Australian parents. So when I came to the UK, I felt like I'd come home. So childhood was really about um, books and music and education and debate and discussion. My mum and dad always worked. Uh, As I said, neither of them were particularly well educated. They were both grammar school children, so they'd won scholarships to grammar schools. But the stories weren't brilliant. So my my dad's mum couldn't afford uniforms or anything like that for him to go to grammar school. So that always weighed on his mind, which meant that I was never allowed to have a job when I was at school. So my parents were were always saying, just go to school and do your best. Don't worry about having a part-time job. We'll take care of those things. Just like, let's just crack on with education. So that was really what the focus was about. And my mum, she worked um, in admin at the University of Western Australia and I used to go, as I think many kids do, I used to go to work with her during the school holidays and go and pick up the mail from the central mail part and um, she worked in the psychology department where students would come in for counselling and I would help sort of tick the box and get people into the room for their counselling session. Mm. So, um, and childhood was sort of all of those things plus obviously being an Aussie kid, the, the beach the beach and lots of swimming and outside sport and those sorts of things. I wasn't, I was a really, I was probably a SWAT, you know, I was a really hard worker at school and academically probably sort of the top 20%. So I wasn't, I didn't outperform, 
Um, I was never sort of up there shooting the lights out, but I was sort of, you know, up there and quite academically minded, I suppose, mm. when I look back. And do you think that influence from your parents as being hard workers, you know, has played a role in who you are now? Yeah, yeah, I really think so, because it was just get on with it, mm. really. Everything was about just get on with it and put a smile on your face and, and be happy. So my dad's man, kind of his mantra, the way he lived his life was you wake up in the morning and you have a choice. You can either be miserable about things or you can be upbeat about things and let's be upbeat about things and um, and and crack on. So yeah, it was it was just about hard work and and not really never in those days I don't think we really talked about whether you took things for granted or not. That no. just sort of wasn't really a thing. You just yeah. you know, your lot was your lot and yeah. and yeah, and you worked hard and had good clean fun. Yeah. <laughs> so where did you go from from there? We'd left school, university? Yeah, so I was the first generation, along with my cousins who are in Sydney, we were the first generation to go to university. I think both of my parents left school early because they had to give money to the family to survive, you know, working class English post-war. There were still rations, so my mum was told by her mother, you have to leave school now and go and get a job because we need the money. And my dad's dad had died and... Um, he was the eldest of three and so he had to go to work as well. So I was able to go to a fee-paying um, senior school So that and that was sacrificed. You know, there were my parents sacrificed to make that happen. And then, yeah, university. So in my father's mind particularly, there was never any question in his mind that, that university had to happen because, you know, he just saw that as, I suppose, that as the, the way to get more opportunity in life. So university it was, uh, University of Western Australia. I studied psychology and statistics in my undergraduate degree, had no idea what I was going to do. I was kind of, as we talked about before we started the podcast, um, I'm deaf in one ear and the older I've got, the more I think, uh, and when I remember back to my mum saying, you know, you've always been an angry child on a mission, you've always been very determined, that perhaps <laughs> that came from having to filter out or filter through all the noise in the world all the time and work out what was noise and what was signal, that maybe that made me quite focused. Mm. Um, and you were born with that. Yeah, so it was discovered, I think I was about four years old and I picked up the telephone mm. at home and said, there's no one here and put the phone down and... Then the phone rang again and there was someone there. So we sent got sent off for testing. And Hannah, you probably relate to this with your with your boy, that um, just constantly going for hearing tests after hearing tests. And now I refuse to go for a hearing test because I know what they're going to say to me. They're going to put me in a booth. They're going to do all these sound tests. And then they're going to say, oh, did you know you're you know, this deaf in one ear? I go, well, I've sort of known that for quite a while. So I've sort of given up, you know. Yeah. Mm. No, actually, I shouldn't say given up because it's sort of just part of who I am now. I'm, you know, I'm not really going to bother to pursue it as trying to get my hearing fixed. It's actually that the nerve endings didn't finish growing. So, so all the mechanics right. are there in the ear, but nothing's connected. So I can't have um, a regular hearing aid. I could have one of those bone-activated yeah, I was going to ask oh, you, had you ever ear thought ear about ear. that? I mean, yeah. probably not now, but uh, no, did you think about that as a younger woman? No, I, 
once I pursued it to the point where a hearing specialist said, what we can do is wire you up and put you in a booth and show you what it would be like if you could hear in two ears. And I decided not to at that point because I thought I don't really want to know what I'm missing. So <laughs> I felt that that would, you know, that would just open a whole other decision process and can of worms yeah. and, you know. Yeah. It's okay. And as we said before, the older you get, the less you worry about it. If I sit next to someone at a dinner party the first time, the first thing I say to them if they're on my right-hand side is, you're going to have to stick your elbow into my ribs if you want to talk to me because I'm not going to know you're, you're speaking to me. So, And also a bit <laughs> yeah. embarrassing in restaurants if people are trying to serve you from behind my right-hand side and I don't know that they're there. No. Apart from that, it's fine. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I think it's imp that's an important thing to remember that you don't always understand why people are the way they are. Yeah, because <laughs> I bet you've had people think, "Well, why is she talking to me?" And it, yeah, 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 and that's difficult for you because that's you know, it's, yeah. you can't hear them. Yeah, I think one of my my grade two teacher wrote in my report that um, that I was a at that point a reserved child. And that perhaps that would be explained by my hearing, my hearing difficulties. And I think my mother m swiftly marched up to the school to tell her that, you know, my daughter had was had no such difficulties and that, that if she was reserved, it's because she's reserved, not because she's difficult of hearing. Mm. So, um, <laughs> your mum sounds like an amazing woman. <laughs> she, she was, yeah. yeah. She died a couple of years ago. She was no nonsense. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so work what what did you do it for work the first your first job so uh, a graduate trainee so with a bachelor of science um i worked for an insurance company as a graduate trainee and i don't i don't really remember that much about it to be honest but it was sort of the basic graduate trainee stuff lots of filing and being involved in projects and learning your way around a big company and i moved on from that fairly quickly i then worked for british airways um, in yield management, actually, which I really enjoyed. So I was working out combinations of fares, currencies and travelling classes across various um, parts of the world. Mm. So looking at the best combination of currency, class and route to maximise profit for the airline. So I was working out of Perth, Western Australia doing that and um, really enjoyed that, loved the airline. But I, I was ambitious, but I still didn't really know for what. So mm. when I was offered the same job that I had on another station, so I was offered the same job but a transfer to New Zealand, I thought that that wasn't, reflecting, wasn't reflective of my contribution and my skills. And so I said, unless you're prepared to give me an upward move in the airline, I'm out of here. So I left. So Good for um, you. Yeah, I, I always... I suppose I think, you know, if you're working in a company that, yes, you need to give, but you also need to make sure that what you're doing serves your needs as well. Absolutely. So that you get to where you want to get to. And I think younger people now more than ever need to think about owning their own CV. So you, of course, yeah. I think those days of handing your life over to a company forever, mm. um, I think that time has passed. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, and I think that's brave though. That's brave to say that, but it's an important thing to do. Like you say, if you're ambitious, you need to advocate for yourself. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. tough. A lot of people yep. find that tough. So yeah, it's very brave to do that. Yeah. yeah, one of the things I've helped a couple of 
younger women with actually in Canada, which is interesting, is when they've needed to have the conversation about pay rises and how do they do that. So I've sort of helped a couple of young women have that conversation and get what they want and how to peg themselves. Because women notoriously think that if they work really hard, they'll be recognised. <laughs> and yeah. men notoriously, and when I say notoriously, I probably say um, maybe it's um, stereotypically, men are much better at self-promoting in the workplace. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, I think that's yeah. my experience. Absolutely right. Yeah. So what did you do then after so, you left? <laughs> British Airways. So then I decided that I would work for myself because at that point I... You know, I had, I always had this burning ambition, but to do what mm. I had no idea, and it was in, it was really frustrating. I used to get very angry and upset about it within myself because I just had no idea. I never had this feeling like a lot of people, or well, some people, maybe not many people, know what they want to do with their lives. So I then decided I would work for myself. I partnered with a guy in Perth, and we set up a of all things, a sports memorabilia business. Really? I know. And we were selling <laughs> sports memorabilia um, through the West Australian newspaper, sort of weekly magazine. So I did that for a while. And because we don't have all day to talk about my long, <laughs> tortuous career, um, I did that for a while. That business failed. And I spent a couple of years when that after that business failed sort of paying back all the people that were owed money. But, you know, that's the right thing to do. So that's fine. And you, you have okay to... okay with that failure? Did you... How did you feel about that? Did you grow from it or did you go into a, a, a depression, for want of a better word, after it? How, how did that failure affect you? You know, I think that it happened over such a period of time that it was... There was never one moment. It, because it was gradual, you just adapt as you go and you start to think, well, okay, what am I? What else am I going to do because I have to still pay the bills? So this is not working. So it was more a this is not working than a moment in time of failure. I was, I just, I adapted and I was working in a fairly entrepreneurial um, group, wider group. And so actually failure in small companies is pretty common. So it was yeah. sort of, it was actually... It was more about, well, okay, how do you reinvent from here? I think today they call it pivoting. But, you know, in those days we just used to call it, we, how are we going to reinvent? So what, what do we do next? And so actually that business and some of the contacts I'd made, that morphed into doing some management consulting type work. And by that point I was doing my MBA as well and I was pregnant. So I was working part-time pregnant and then I had my son and so I still kept working part time, finishing my MBA, and and that worked that worked really well. So that was that's the answer, I think, Mike. Is it? There was okay. just never a moment. It was like, okay, well, yeah, where does this take me next? Just moved on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I um, really recognise when you talk about being ambitious but not sure what you want to do. That's uh. me. That was me before Alfie. So I really, I think that's uh. yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, because people a lot, of, I think I do. I do think a lot of people feel like that. It's like I, I have a calling. I've got so much to give, but I actually don't know where to place myself. So yeah. that's really interesting. And can you tell me a bit about? Um, I know the one thing about you that you were in. Is it mining? Yes. So how did you get into mining? So again, the sort of that 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 strikes me as being a very male, mm. a male place. And I remember you telling me a story which I think would be interesting to 
because I've talked to you about my sort of imposter syndrome and thinking like, yeah. oh my God, I'm in this room full of men and I'm frightened. Yeah. And you talked to me about when you were asked to make tea. Uh, <laughs> that's a re- I think that's a really great story. I can still see the meeting room that I was in when it happened and there were, it was a, a, quite a big boardroom in an office and I, I won't name names. And um, everyone filed in and I sat down and by then I think I had... I probably, I think I had my MBA by then. So I was well qualified. I was, you know, I knew that I could pass decent exams. So I kind of felt, you know, I was feeling okay about myself. And yeah, I, I was asked to make tea. So I think there were about five or six, seven, eight guys in the room. And in those days, there were, there were never any women in the room unless they were there to make the tea or take the minutes. And so I was asked <laughs> to, to make the tea. And I don't think I was asked to take the minutes. Um, <laughs> and so... Well, so I made the tea, but I definitely remember my hackles went up. Mm. And then I actually don't remember if it was at the end of that meeting or I was describing this scenario um, to someone, actually a Canadian guy who was a real, you know, quite high, high profile guy in the mining sector. And he said to me, the greatest compliment you can ever be paid is to be underestimated. Mm. You told me that and I've never forgotten that. Yeah. And I just think, isn't that so cool? Yeah. Especially in a negotiation because I promise you, if you're underestimated, oh my gosh, you can learn a lot of things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because people tell you things because I don't know why, but maybe they don't do it to me as much now because I'm sort of too old. But when you're when you're young or whatever, you know, yes, you can find out a lot by asking questions and people not thinking that you're necessarily going to do anything with the information. This person doesn't matter, so I can yeah. tell them anything. Yeah. Yes. So I kept that, and so then my hackles no longer went up, mm. and I just parked that. Yeah, and it's it stayed with me. I would have been 28 or something. Mm. And how did you get into mining? Chance. Just, yeah. Yeah. So, again, another really long story short. I was doing some management consulting for a guy who was running a bottled water business, and I was heavily pregnant, and um, he had to, he needed some statistical work doing. And he said to me, "I don't care how pregnant you are. I don't even care if you have this baby. This work has to be done. We'll oh. set up a creche in the corner. We'll do whatever it takes." <laughs> Lovely. So I, so I thought, you know, this is this is my guy. You know, I work for this guy. <laughs> anyway, lo- he then he was very entrepreneurial. He then went off and was going to do a mining deal with some guys in South Africa. And he said to me, "Right, you know, you're coming with me. You're brilliant." Like, you come with me. So he got some new offices in Perth and I sort of went as a consultant but had an office within his office area. Um, and that was that was sort of the start of my entry into the mining space and I just loved it. I'm a tomboy. Mm. I get on really well, you know, with men. I find men easy to quite easy to deal with. I shouldn't say easy but, you know, mm. relatively easy to deal with. Um, my dad was larger than life and loud and... Opinionated, so You're used to that. Yeah. So yeah, quite you know, doesn't phase me at all. Mm. So I started going to South Africa uh, for work, mm. and if you think Perth, Western Australia is the Wild West, um, <laughs> Johannesburg about twenty five years ago <laughs> was certainly that, and so that was just exhilarating, mm. and I loved it, and I was so ambitious to do deals and be successful that what I mining, just was it. Yeah, so I was involved in all sorts of things. So in the in the first instance, it was gold. So it was um, mm. it was restructuring of 
the large um, old gold mines that are, surround Johannesburg, basically. So the, mi- the history of mining in Johannesburg had been all about deep underground mines using cheap labour. And then when, when labour became more expensive and mining methods changed and these ore bodies started to sort of run out and the whole dynamics of, of, um, of the corporates owning these mining companies changed, there were opportunities for, small, for smaller companies to buy individual assets. So um, I would go underground, two kilometres underground, um, on the outskirts of Johannesburg, into these stopes, you know, 90 centimetre width oh, stopes, and you'd crawl around underground. And in the corner, you'd see the, the, the dirt um, pinching away where, where the earth was literally closing up slowly behind these stopes. Sounds so, horrendous. <laughs> yeah, and and the shafts that we went down in, I mean, I'm sure they haven't changed. They were lined with wood and they would run water down the shafts all the time and you put a sort of big heavy raincoat on and you'd get in, in the cage and then the cage would just plummet oh deep underground. <laughs> then you go on these declines, so you get in a cage, it's sort of like a really bad version of um, of a of a theme ride, in the dark and you go, cl- you know, clashing on these declines. So to take an hour to get to the mining face from above ground, right. but it was interesting. so interesting. Yeah, yeah. but it's very yeah. So let's move on to cannabis. Yes. <laughs> how did that? That's a big jump from. How did, and, and and obviously moving to the UK. Gold to yeah. cannabis. And how did how did it how did it all happen? Well, so I wanted to come to the UK. Uh, I was really keen to have my son educated up here. Um, I thought that he would thrive in this environment and. And I'd been up here working a lot. I'd always raised money up here, so I'd spent a lot of time in the UK. Mm. So I moved in 2006, and um, my son went to school up here. I'd been doing mining deals all that way. And then in 2006, 17, I'd finished a really large deal. We'd put together some um, agri- um, some aggregate assets, assets uh, in the Channel Islands and put them into a company. And then the commodity prices crashed, and so... I was just, it was opportunistic. I was reading the FT one day and saw that there'd been this cannabis conference in Perth, uh, sorry, in London, and thought, hmm, that's really interesting. I'd seen, I saw what had happened in capital markets in Canada and Australia and thought, hmm, you know, maybe that's a sector that could be of interest. The rest is history, really. That entrepreneurial spirit again looking for the next thing is in you, yeah. Yeah, and and I suppose... um, so, so it was in the in the early stages. It was here's an opportunity, and it was a commercial opportunity. Mm. I didn't have a calling to cannabis, but once you get into the space, then I felt I sort of feel that this is the right time. So, oh, I'm far enough into my career. I'm kind of at the end of really, you know, I'm, you know, I'm at the end of what's been an amazing career, and so. I've kind of proven what I needed to prove to myself and to make my life the way I want it to be. And so once I got into this cannabis space and you realise actually that there's something that really needs to be done here, it's like, well, okay, let's do this. Mm. And I'm quite, and I'm very determined and stubborn's probably not the right word, but, you know, as you guys know better than most and just about everyone, this requires like real determination and long-term passion and commitment. It's not just a deal that can be done. It's not just loose talk. Yeah. 
And, you know, in commodities, you can do that. It's so different. You can talk about, well, the gold price might do this and then our cost of mining is going to be this and our cost of capital will be that and we'll make this much money and it'll be great. And, you know, you've got to be, this requires care. So I feel that I can bring everything I've learned, hopefully, all the good and the bad, so learning from mistakes and saying, okay, we we have to make this happen. It's just, you know, we have to do it. And we just can't stop until it's done. We cannot stop until we have a proper regulated uh, medical cannabis sector here in the UK. It's sort yeah. of like right, until right. that's done, we Why don't Why did you pick stop. the UK? I mean, other than the fact you were living here, I realise that yeah. because growing cannabis in the UK is not the obvious place to grow it because no. the vast majority of people grow it cheap abroad and bring yeah. it in. yeah. What was wrong with that model? Why why did you invest a lot of money, no doubt, yeah. in the UK sector, which is not an not yeah. an easy sector? Yeah. Good question. I I suppose if I think about my experience in mining and it, and even though there are so many mining entrepreneurs in this space, probably not so many as there were a few years ago, but so many of the things I learnt there are applicable, which is having a first world jurisdiction where the rule of law is sort of the rule of law. Yes, I know it's frustrating at times, but I've spent many, many weeks sitting outside the Minister of Mines office in Dar es Salaam trying to get a meeting. So in some respects, we have a legal framework, we have a regulatory framework that is challenging in many ways, but it is first world. And if you get a licence to do something, you kind of, you know, you can rely on the fact that you have that. So that was appealing. Secondly, I just think there are so many complexities still in this industry that actually if you can remove some of them, which is if you can remove foreign jurisdictions, this is from our perspective, you know, if I can remove foreign jurisdictions, import, export, trying to comply with different sets of regulations all over the world, okay, there are still lots of things we have to do and we have to get right, but hopefully there are now fewer of them. I love this country. It's my home and we have the best growing conditions in the world. So the biggest myth we have to debunk, I think, in this country yeah. is that you can grow medical cannabis here. We mm. have many, many hours of daylight. You don't need extreme heat to grow cannabis. What you need is lots of daylight. And we have that here and mm. we can grow medical cannabis very well in this country using natural light. And And we met these guys who had grown for, for the large pharmaceutical company and they had used methodologies that were low capital, low operating costs mm. and it makes good business sense. Mm. So yeah. let's have a go. Mm. And and just to try and I still believe, you know, if we can if we can provide UK based medicine, especially while we're in this unlicensed period of medical cannabis's life, that actually giving as much, um, putting as much positive, as much positive criteria around every step of what we're doing uh, as possible for prescribers and for patients just yeah. is going to help. I think every little bit helps to try and create something that mm. is going to get to patients on time, on budget, works, and then gets them on time, on, on budget next time they need it as well. So UK patients and UK prescribers can say, here's what we need, and we can say we can deliver that. So we can actually kind of like, like let's close the loop. Mm. Mm. And then I met you, um, Hannah, at the Spectator yeah. talk in 
Was that 2019? Mm. And then I went and I thought, oh, my God, this woman's amazing. I am really frightened. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've become, you know, great, great mates. mates which yeah. is, and you've, you know, given yeah. me loads of advice and, and sort of been a bit of a mentor to me, which I really appreciate. And thank you a lot for that. But, yeah, I remember meeting you and thinking, oh, my God. My only I'm advice. I'm in this room with these amazing <laughs> business people and I'm really uh, frightened. <laughs> well, but I think you and you give us the reality check and mm, that's... Well, that's why I feel that it's my job is to, yeah. to tell, talk to yeah. businesses and say, yeah. why are you doing this? And that's what I resonates with what you talk about. You talk a lot about doctors and patients and that's, that is what... That is what will make your business successful is talking it's, about is knowing what they need and how to fulfill their needs. Because actually, if you don't do that, yeah. you're not going to get far. And I think that, you know, it's really it resonates with me, all the things yeah. you say. It's really important. Yeah. Yeah. And we just can't stop, you know. And it's great that you post and some of the other um, the patient groups post on on social media all the time because you know you when you become a bit either downhearted and I think it's probably the same for you guys you know you just think what are we doing this is really yeah Yeah, and then someone posts something and you think okay that's that's what I need today to get me going again yeah Yeah, (laughs) well it's brilliant and it's really exciting and as you say it it must we you know we're very grateful to businesses like yours in the UK for saying well this is the place to be and this is the work to do because it's not easy and it's but it's really important and I agree with you and also we I mean we were talking earlier about the 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 sort of discussion around growth from the government I think the only way we're going to achieve real growth is to focus on new industry and this is a new industry that needs backing so it's you know that's something that we're all trying to work on um I hope you don't mind I want to ask you about um your husband, you work with your husband yes. in your new business. How's that? It's great fun. I'm. I don't think I would have been able to do it earlier in my career, um, <laughs> because I was still, you know, because I was. I had my own things to prove mm. to myself. I don't really know what they were, you know. I wanted to be successful, whatever that means. Yeah, yeah whatever yeah. that means. But we have complementary strengths, which is really helpful. We uh, debate and argue nonstop. Um, <laughs> We, 99.9% of the time, we will, you know, we get to the same result and we pretty much have a rule that, you know, we, neither of us will ever say, well, okay, I don't agree with that, but let it go. Yeah. We we just keep going until we get to, to point agree, a point where yeah. we agree, yeah. Because we have such different areas of expertise, not only ex- expertise, that's probably too strong a word, areas of interest as much as anything. So Charlie's way more interested in the science part uh, and, re- you know, really detailed science part. And I'm very interested in the business part. Like, I love the planning. This morning on my email, the plans came through for, you know, the build-out of part of our facility and, and I just love pouring over mm. plans because it takes me back to my mining days and I'd be out in the bush with the engineers going, okay, you know, yeah. we're going to bring so the ore in here. you've both got strengths that you yeah. bring to the table. And, and yeah. so that works. It works, yeah. which is yeah. great. And, yeah. and obviously your son is also involved as well. Yeah, and I think, say. absolutely, and I think that's part of why it uh, it all just feels right at the moment to be doing this and to be really determined about it. It's kind of, it's been it's really lovely. as well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, to sort of have a family business. And it's great. as mothers know, to be able to work with your son, um, you know, it's really cool. Yeah, it's really it's cool. Great. Yeah, brilliant. And be told what to do instead of telling him what to do. <laughs> he tells you what to do now. <laughs> yeah, I get told off if I if I don't handle a meeting well or whatever. I let meetings ramble on too much. I'm, 
He's usually the first to tell me that I need to keep it a bit tighter. Right. <laughs> you know, the question I seem to be getting asked all our guests. It's a sort of typical interview question. Where do you see you and therefore your company going yeah. in, let's just say, the, the classic five-year time frame? What, where, where are you going from now? Well, where I'd like to be is um, working not as many hours as I am. Um, and I think that's now doable because I can see that we will be in a position in the next five years that we will be able to deliver really good quality medical cannabis to UK patients. And I see the business being, I see Ananda being, you know, a thriving business with a really great team of people. I'm really, really keen that we have this we keep this amazing team that we're developing and that it grows with the business. So I'm really interested in seeing this team that we've put together grow with the business into the senior roles as we as we build things out. And in five years' time, I really hope that we have a, a thrive, you know, I don't want the throwaway lines. Let's say that we can have a, a, a reliable UK-based supply of medical cannabis for UK patients and that the patient numbers grow and that doctors become, you know, more encouraged and yeah. um, and that more of them are educated and that we get more prescribing and that there's more awareness and people who are... And patients don't get stopped for, you know, when they're driving and questioned about their medical cannabis and, you know, all of those sort of, you know issues that patients deal with that we see them start to go away and it's just mm. time and it's dedication and and then what i can't see you as a retiring sort of person somehow no <laughs> there another, are another plan did you no. want to take that? or is that is this it is this the last plan you know never never say never but i think yeah. this is the last time i'll i really want to do lots of other things so i don't i don't consider myself to be only gardening and reading books, but what what sort of things? Uh, no, I'd love to stay involved in other businesses, mm. but I don't want to be. I don't want the buck don't to want stop to be with me. Ship. You want yeah, to you maybe sit on some yeah. boards and yeah. do some things like that yep. rather than yeah, yep. yeah, and and support other people in realizing their ambitions. Yeah, well, I think you. Yeah. I think it sounds like you know. I know. Say for me, and you've obviously done mentoring for other women in Canada. I think you know. Life coach, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, usually my advice is just get on with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, but that's good. That's good because I, you know, I'm a terrible one for thinking, oh, but what about this? What about that? And, and you said, yeah, just just put your head down and get on with it and stop thinking. And, yeah, that's great Or advice. put your head up and get on with it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Good advice. But, yeah, thank you for everything you're doing in the UK. It gives us all hope because, you know, like Mike and I can do the patient and the doctor stuff and... We don't do the building businesses stuff, so thank you and thank you for being so welcoming. We've been around your facility; it's great. Um, you know, you that and that's what I think is really good. You're really open about yeah. that. You like show people around, yeah. and you're really open about, yeah. you know, involving everyone in your business in that sense, which is great. So thank you so much for everything you do, and thank you for talking about your life because it's you know it's a vulnerability and it's but it's really interesting and I think it's great for people to start to understand who's in this sector, yeah. what they're about, where they come from, why it matters, and what their why is exactly thank you very much melissa for all you've done and all you're doing and thank you so much for coming on our podcast and uh, we'll say goodbye there thank you thank you again thanks and thanks for having me